Our passage this morning is Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and as you're seated, I'll just let you know if you're new here, my name's Brent. As Fred said, it is a weird name. I've got Brett. And Brent and Brad, and I, I, the list goes on and on. It's a bit tricky. Um, but I'm Brent, and I'm part of the team here at Christ City Church. Uh, really glad and thankful to be able to be given the opportunity to preach God's word. We get to do this, guys. We get to come to a place where we get to listen to God's word. Uh, exposited and applied to our hearts so that we can grow. It's just my joy to do that with you this morning. Um, And as we jump in, uh, we can't do this by ourselves. We need some help. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we ask for your help. We ask that you would be working powerfully um, as our triune God. Uh, You, Father, who have given us your word, Uh, You, Spirit, who applied the word into our hearts. Uh, You, Jesus, uh, who lived the word faithfully and caused us to be able to be raised with you, to be changed by it. Uh, We just ask that you would would work. Uh, Cause what's true to dwell in our hearts. Cause what I say that that maybe doesn't line up quite perfectly with your word to just be forgotten. And uh, and do your, your work for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 6. Uh, verses 6 to 10. And if, if you're new here, all that means is that we're in a part of the Bible, the second half of the Bible, that has a bunch of letters in it. And this is a letter written to some people that lived in a place called Galatia. That's why it's called the letter to the Galatians. And it's written by an early follower of Jesus, whose name was the Apostle Paul. His name was Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. And he wrote to them uh, this letter, and now we're towards the end of that letter. And here in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, at the end of the letter, Paul is now addressing one potential misunderstanding about what he said so far in that letter. So what's Paul been saying so far? What could be potentially misunderstood? Well, Paul's been saying really clearly for all of us that God gives salvation. God gives his blessings. God gives his eternal life to those who trust in Jesus by faith. Period. It's not by their works. It's by their faith, trusting in Jesus. And throughout the letter, Paul's been, he's been pretty intense at times, at moments, vehement in his defense of this incredible gospel good news that we have, this salvation from God as a gift been defending that. He's been sharing with us that because of Jesus, you and I can be saved, not because of religious observance, not because of an adequate education or doing enough good things enough times in our lives, not even having the right DNA, but simply from grace as a gift because of what Jesus has done that we could never do. 
and has given to us as a result of his sacrifice. But here's the problem. Someone who heard that message of salvation, I think they could say this. Then they could say, if I'm not saved by my works, then do my works matter? If I'm not saved, if I don't get God's blessings and the good things that that he's accomplished and that he's able to give as a triune God of the universe, if I don't get those by what I do, then can I do whatever I want? The question here is what Paul addresses in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. And in our text, Paul puts the nail in the coffin on any belief that Christian living equates with Christian lounging. Christian living is not Christian lounging. Your works do matter. Doing good matters a lot. And our outline this morning from verses 6 to 10, it's all about doing good because that's what Paul's talking about here. And Paul tells us three things, essentially. He says, number one, you need to sow what is good. And that's not sow what good. That's, that's sow as in the verb. Uh, and it's not a needle through thread sowing. It's putting seeds into the ground sowing. So what is good? Point one. Point two, persevere in what is good. We need to persevere in what is good. And then point three, we'll look at what does it actually take to be good? What it takes to be good. So jump in with me on point one. So what is good? And look at verses seven to eight. We're going to skip verse six initially, but we'll come back to it in a moment. Do not be deceived, Paul writes. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh, to his own flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So here in this text, Paul's using this metaphor of farming, of sowing and reaping. And he uses this metaphor to ramrod home for us the truth that our works matter every day. Our works matter. But let's realize today we're not first century agrarian peoples. We're Vancouverites. So maybe we need to take a little bit of time to unpack what it means to sow and to reap and what Paul's talking about so we understand what he's saying. All right. Here's a little lesson, a little lesson for us, Vancouverites, not agrarian peoples. So when you want to farm, guys, you start with seeds, okay? And seeds are those annoying things that are still in your apples, but are no longer in your grapes or in your watermelon. Unless you buy the really cheap grapes and the really cheap watermelon, and then you got to sort them out in your mouth and spit them into the garbage can. But ancient peoples, all right? You following me here? But ancient peoples, they didn't spit their seeds into the garbage cans, okay? They used them. They prepared them carefully because they knew something that would blow our minds. They knew that if you put those seeds into the soil, they'll grow into stuff. It's magical. It's incredible. Now, joking aside, the principles of of planting and harvesting, they're actually pretty incredible if you stop and, and just consider it for a moment. 
And because we're all really smart people here, and you know, I, you know, we're not really that dumb. We don't need to have this kind of a simple lesson. We'll just have these three simple truths that, that illustrate for us what the rules of harvesting actually are. So if you want to know what harvesting is, you want to know how this works, here's the rules. When you sow, or when you reap, you reap what you sow. Right? What you put into the garden, what you put into the ground is what you get out of the ground. Lesson number two. You reap later than you sow. You put the stuff in the ground, you wait a while, and you get the stuff out of it. Lesson number three. You reap more than you sow. You know, this is incredible, actually. And if you have a garden, you know this. And, and growing up, for me, I remember growing up, and we had these big gardens in our backyard. And, and in the wintertime, you look at these brown things. They were just ugly with all the dead plants from the previous year on them. But then what would happen is that, you know, May or I guess April or May or June, we often got to it late because that's kind of how our family was, uh, we'd start tilling the soil. And we'd work hard. And I remember opening up the packages of these little radish seeds and the carrot seeds, and I pull out the seeds, and they were so small, like little granular seeds, that were almost difficult to count. And you don't really count them, you just kind of sprinkled them into, into the row that you had prepared to plant. And then you would wait. I would, we'd mostly wait. Some people weed and take care of their garden between sowing and reaping. Uh, we mostly just waited. Um, but, you know, time would go by, we'd do a little bit of weeding, and then at the end of the summer, this incredible thing would happen. We kids would work with my parents and we'd gather in like bushels of produce, you know, just containers and containers of carrots and radishes and lettuces and beans. So many beans. I've snapped so many beans. I think I still, my fingers probably still smell like beans. Uh, you know, and we pull it all in. We bring it all into our house and we'd reap the produce. You'd put in one teaspoon of carrot seed and you'd get out 10 pounds of carrots. You know, you, you community garden people, you know exactly what we're talking about here. Unless you neglect your community garden, like you're one of those people that, you know, you, you have the lot and you don't use it. In which case, call me up and let me take it instead. And we'll try to use it. And eventually we won't use it anymore. And we'll have to give it to somebody else. Now, this is gardening. This is the, the stuff that Paul's talking about. But if, if Paul's talking this way about the Christian life, we should ask something. There's, there's a question we need to understand here. We need to answer. What is the seed that we're to sow? What kind of sowing to the Spirit, what kind of goodness does Paul want us to sow? It's the regular good of the Christian life by the Spirit. Paul says, sow to the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, fundamentally, it looks like a life that's characterized by love for God and love for others. Because the Spirit has come into our lives and made us alive to know God's love, to have His love in our hearts and overflow and spill out into love for others. That's what the Spirit does. To sow to the Spirit is to sow this love for God and for others. And on the flip side, sowing to the flesh is essentially a life characterized by sowing to yourself. It's essentially self-love. A life characterized by sowing to yourself. To sow to the Spirit is to have a life full of the good of living by the Spirit that produces the fruit of chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, that Paul's already talked about. He said the fruit of the Spirit are these. 
Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. To sow to the Spirit is to sow the good also of chapter 6, verse 2, which Paul, or it's not Paul, Paul talked about it, but not as recently as Fred, who talked about it last week, which is what I wanted to say. Uh, the, the, to sow to the Spirit is to sow the good of chapter 6, verse 2, which is to bear one another's burdens. To sow to the Spirit is to take care of one another here, to love one another, and to serve one another in this community. That's to sow to the Spirit. One of the things of what it means. To sow to the Spirit is to sow the good that Paul emphasizes finally in verse 10 when he summarizes this way. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to the household of faith. To sow to the Spirit is characteristically to live as somebody who by the Spirit has been reconciled to God, who is love. So that His love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and spills over in our lives in the actions of love for others. To sow to the Spirit is to to have love for the people around you so much that you're willing to sacrifice even your reputation and awkward conversations to get into conversation with those outside the walls here in Vancouver to share with them the love of Christ that you've experienced. To, to plead with them to come to know and to, and to see and to savor and to delight in the love of God that you yourself have experienced. Those are all different parts of what it means to, to sow to the Spirit. But sowing, gardening, as I remember, even though we didn't do much weeding, it does take work. It takes a lot of work. And what you sow matters. What you put into the garden of your life matters. You reap what you sow. Later than you sow, and more than you sow. And because of this, Paul feels there's a need actually to give us a warning. So look at verse 7, and look at the way that, at the beginning of verse 7, that Paul warns us. He says, don't be deceived. He says, God is not mocked. God is not mocked. The distinguished professor of New Testament, David De Silva, he writes on this text this way. This is a really, really great quote for us. He says, No theology of justification or theology of eternal security or other conceptual construct that we espouse will pull the wool over God's eyes. As he peers into our hearts and minds to learn, did we spend our lives sowing to the flesh or sowing to the spirit? Did we dedicate ourselves to making the best use of the gifts God gave us? Or did, we do, or did we resist the Spirit in order to protect some areas of fleshly indulgence? The good theology is true. The fact that we're saved by faith in what Jesus has done for us alone is true. But works matter. But works matter. Paul says, God will not be mocked. The personal God of the universe who controls all things, he'll not be mocked when it comes to our lives, what we sow, we will reap. You know, one possible translation for that Greek word that's translated mocks, mocked in our text is an interesting one. It's outwitted. It's saying you can't outwit God. You can't outwit God by sowing a whole life of self. A whole life to yourself 
and then hope to reap the reward that God gives to those who have spent their lives in love for him and love for others. We can't trick God. You know, some of you know that, um, that I have a number of close friends from my childhood whose, whose lives are a complete disaster right now, to say the least. And I've, I've labored over these friends. I've loved these friends. I've employed these friends back when I had a construction company. I fired one of these friends. I've been in the trenches with them time in and time out, visiting them in prison even. And over the years, I've watched their minds slowly lose their grip on reality and even their bodies begin to fall apart because of their choices. And as I've watched and as I've wept for these friends, I've pondered the seeds sown to get to this place are so small. There are little regular things along the way. Little regular things of, you know, God says this, and he's called me to love him and to obey him, but I choose not to. I'm going to go this way. I'm not going to see my God as good and loving and worthy of following and sacrificing for. I'm going to turn away from him. I'm going to do what comes naturally from my heart, from myself. And unless they repent, these friends of mine, and I, I pray for their repentance, I seek opportunities to, to share with them more even today. Unless they repent, God won't be mocked in their lives. And the harvest they reap will be corruption, or even maybe a better translation of that word in our text, destruction. But don't misunderstand me here. Sowing for destruction it doesn't just apply to those whose lives are a complete mess in an obvious way. I think we think that often. That's not all that we're talking about here. It can apply just as easily to the one whose life looks like they have it all together. With a nice car, with a nice house, a nice family, and a nice job. As we've been saying, sowing to the Spirit is the careful living in love for God. And love for others. Sowing to the flesh is living my life for me. For me. For me. Me at the center of everything and God nowhere to be seen. And others nowhere to be seen. That's sowing to the flesh. And you can see this again illustrated pretty frankly for us in Romans chapter 2 verses 6 to 8. Because there Paul talks about a similar idea to the one we're talking about here. But he doesn't use the word flesh. He uses the word self-seeking. Look at this text with me. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, by itself that word doesn't seem that terrible, does it? Who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. That's interesting too, isn't it? That the truth isn't something just to know, it's something to obey. But obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. God will not be mocked. What we're called to in life is not a mediocre sowing to ourselves that reaps destruction. What we're called to instead is to labor, to persevere, not living just for a month or a day or a year or two, but living our whole lives long in laborious sowing, endurance and sowing, perseverance and sowing to the Spirit. We're called to persevere. And that leads us to our second point. Persevere in what is good. So look first at, at verse 9 and look at this with me. 
Paul calls us to persevere in what is good. He says, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So Paul uses again this this rich imagery of sowing and reaping, of farming. But guess what? It takes patience. It takes endurance. You're out there in the hot sun as a first century agrarian farmer. You know, today's easier. You're in the cab, I guess. and You got the podcast on probably. I don't know what those guys listen to. Air conditioned, most likely. Uh, But not then. You're out in the hot sun and you're laboring, you're breaking up this hard ground and trying to prepare it for a harvest. It takes patience, it takes enduring, but you're anticipating something all the while, our harvest. Sowing is hard, but Paul says, if we don't give up, we will reap and there will be a harvest if we endure, if we persevere. And endurance and persevering here are the key. And the thing is, the first century farmer, they worked, they spent all this time and energy for a crop of potatoes, right? And here we're promised something else. We're promised that the labor that we put in, the soil that we're planting in, will produce for us eternal life, something much, much better. Life forever in a relationship with God. Life forever, knowing his love, being with him in a new heavens, a new earth, renovated from top to bottom, living with joy with our King of Kings and our Redeemer. We labor for that. That's what we'll reap if we persist in sowing to the Spirit, sowing in love for God and love for one another. So we need to endure. We need to persist in this. That's why Paul says in verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. But I want you to notice something here. This is really interesting because twice now, Paul has emphasized doing good in a particular way that prioritizes the church. We skipped over verse 6, so I'll read that for you now. But verse 6 is one of these verses. We'll come back to it right now. Paul writes in verse 6, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. That's interesting. Another prioritization of the church. In that passage, he's reminding the church to bear a specific burden, the burden of providing for the needs of the pastor who brings the preached word to the congregation. He doesn't single out widows or orphans or poor people. He singles out the teacher of God's word. And then here in verse 10, in a similar way, he says, do good to everybody the world over, but prioritize especially to the church. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Why did he do that? Wouldn't it have made more sense if Paul wants good to manifest in this earth to just say straightforward and simply do good to everyone and just be done with it? You know, on one hand, that seems like it would make a lot more sense. Why is there a priority placed here on the church? Well, obviously, for the same reason that Amazon has more than one fulfillment center. Right? That, that makes sense. It's obvious to you guys, just like it is to me. No? Well, Amazon's vision is, as we worry about Alexa listening into our every conversation, to take over the world right? They want to have a global empire. Pretty sure they're going to go after the presidency of the United States next. And to do that, Jeff Bezos, he can't just have one fulfillment center in central Arizona that services the needs of his expanding global empire. He needs to have multiplication of his fulfillment centers for it to flourish. And in a similar way for the church to do good, 
for the seed of the love of God and love for others to be sown, the word of God is going to have to be preached. And congregations are going to have to grow in a healthy way, caring for one another. Without a thriving church, all of the good that you could ever do is going to be inherently limited. It will peter out and will eventually die. But with the church growing, this being cared for uh, of the church and the people in the church and the preached word, multiplication is going to start to happen. What we have in verses 6 and 10 is Paul's incredible prioritization of the church, of the ministry of the gospel, because without a healthy church preaching a true gospel, no good is going to be done at all. There's a real practical application here for us. Take care of your leaders. Take care of one another in your doing of good. They're not your only priorities. Paul says here, do good to everyone. But in our lives, there ought to be a prioritization on what's happening here because we understand how important the church is as the mothership of all Christian good being done in this world. As sinners are saved, brought to life by the Spirit, repent of their sin, become more like Jesus, and are changed to go out and do good as they've received it. So that's why Paul prioritizes the good of taking care of of teachers of God's word and one another. And incidentally, it's also why our vision here at Christ City Church is to be a network of neighborhood churches. We want to be a church planting church. Because we know that Christ City Kitsilano can't reach Christ or can't reach East Vancouver by ourselves. We need to plant a church there for that to be done, for more good to be done in this city. But let's come back here then to the main point that we're in persevering and doing good. Just remind us where we're at. Verse 9 again says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Can I just say for a moment, just really honestly, this is hard. This is hard. It's not easy to endure, not just for a day, for an hour, but for years on end in doing good. It's hard. It's difficult. It's not easy to hold on to Jesus when things are difficult. It's not easy to care for the needs of others, even in this community, when when they don't really want to be cared for very much, when they're difficult and hard to love. It's not easy to serve and to sacrifice. It's totally cliche, but I think it's worth reminding ourselves that the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And as much as I've really enjoyed coming to Vancouver and walking along the seawall. The Christian life isn't a walk along the seawall, even if you go the whole way. It's more like a plodding and a climbing of Everest. It takes endurance. But as we saw, Paul holds out hope for us. Look at the end of verse 9 again. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul knows that hope is essential for the harvest. You know, hope motivates hard work. We're not condemned, like Sisyphus was in Greek mythology, to labor rolling a stone up a mountain for eternity to only have it roll back to the bottom of the mountain with nothing gained by his hard labor. That's not how we're to work. We have hope. Guys, we're called in so many ways to live our lives like it's Friday. Our whole life long. 
and the weekend's just around the corner. And in the moment, we can work with joy. The work feels light to our fingers because we know Saturday is at our fingertips. It's coming. We know that we have hope, hope for what's to come. You know, we won't endure in our Christian lives by gratitude only. We have a lot to be thankful for as Christians. We can look backwards to the cross a lot. That's wonderful. But we won't endure with gratitude alone. We also need hope to endure well. As we live, as we labor, as we seek a harvest of good, we must orient our hearts forward in hope. Cultivate hope for what is coming to us ahead. Cultivate a longing and a hunger and a thirsting for God in his glory that awaits us. That's why Peter could say this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And he said, Set your hope fully on the grace we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Jesus brings is going to be the day when he returns to earth. He comes in the fullness of his power and his beauty and his grace. And he's revealed to us as he is. And we're with God in glory. And we stand and we fall on our faces before his throne and we worship together with every tribe and language and tongue of people across this earth who have together come to know Jesus as we have. To worship him with joy. It's the harvest that we look forward to. That's the, that's the reason we're laboring to be there with him in praise. But that leads me to a question. If you reap what you sow... If we must persevere then in our sowing, what is good? Here's the question. What are you sowing? Where are you investing your time and your treasure and your talents? What does your wallet say about what you're sowing? What does your calendar say about what you're sowing? What does your mental preoccupations say about what you're sowing? Are you always others thinking or predominantly self-thinking and focused? This passage is really deeply sobering for us, I think. It's a beautiful passage, but it's one that I think we just need to land on us right now. Again, I'm going to read verses 7 to 9. Let them land on you. Let, them, let the Holy Spirit do his work and press in on your hearts. What is he saying to you? This is a word from the Bible, from God for us. Look at verses 7, uh, all the way to 10 with me. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. If we reap more than we sow, later than we sow, and what we sow, shouldn't that motivate us in our Christian lives to sow generously and frequently to the Spirit? To labor at this, knowing that the law of exponential returns applies to the harvest in our Christian lives. And we get that in banking, right? Or at least some of us do. Maybe others of us need to go see a financial counselor. But, we, but there's this principle about these exponential returns, right? And we understand that making small deposits along the way now is going to lead to something very, very good down the road. 
That applies to our Christian lives. Do we think about that? Our lives are just a dot. Just imagine this. They're just a dot on the timeline of eternity going forever in both directions. So how are we using our lives? How are we investing them? Verse 10 says, do good to everyone. But there's a question that we need to ponder in our last point. Can we do that? Take a look at our last point, what it takes to be good. Do good to everyone, verse 10 says. You know, there's a lot of offensive passages of scripture out there for the 2019 Vancouverite who doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. There's lots of offensive passages. This isn't one of them. Do good to everyone. I mean, if we had some offer to put it up at City Hall, big banner, I don't think anyone would bat an eye. You know, this, this is good. All right, we like this verse. Great verse. But can we do this sort of good without Jesus? That's the question. Can we do this sort of good without Jesus? You know, when Paul speaks of doing good here, he isn't talking about platitudes. He's talking about the tangible and the measurable outcomes of your life. Good intentions, good thinking, and strategizing, good plans for other people to do some good stuff. Hey, the government should really be doing this. That doesn't count. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a goodness that's in you. That comes from deep within you, within your heart, and comes from your very toes down to the bottom of your person and emanates out from you and isn't like a t-shirt that you put on on the outside once in a while on Thursdays from 7 to 10 p.m. It's deeper than that. It's more than that. It's a deep goodness. You know, here's the thing. I don't think that we can do the good that this passage talks about without Jesus. I think the human condition is more sobering and pessimistic than Vancouver ever lets on. And actually, I think Vancouver's a little bit like Pharaoh, who in the Old Testament made the, the Hebrew people make more bricks with less straw. Because they say, hey, look, you should be this kind of great, good person. But it does nothing to equip us to live that way. It can't equip us to live that way. I mean, have you tried this? Have you tried to live a good and selfless, generous life, others-focused, the whole way through? Have you tried for a week? A month? Have you tried for a year? How about trying for 40 or 50 years? You're going to give up. You're going to give up. I mean, maybe you can white-knuckle a certain sort of good for a little while if no one looks too closely at your heart by working really hard, but you're not going to work the good that you really need, the good that emanates from within, the good from a whole transformed person. Yet, I think that a lot of us think that we're good people still, don't we? And I think we, we think that we're good because we compare my life in a particular moment, usually in the, the line at a coffee shop, with the person who's right next to me, and I say, aha! I tip the barista. I'm good, and they're not. You know, we look at that little moment, we think, this is, this is what we're talking about. But it's not. I think really we're like high school students that kind of change the answer sheets to try and get some straight A's happening in our lives. 
I think we all have our own carefully crafted and personal mirrors that we look at that somehow illuminate the better parts of our faces and veil what's wrong and evil. So if you don't know Jesus here this morning, here's a question for you. Let me ask you, how good are you really? Be honest. Do you do good when no one is watching? Do you do good in your relationships? Does your spouse think that you always do good? Your partner, your friends, your roommates, the people on the road next to you in your car. What do they think of you? We're talking here about the deep sort of goodness that invades our lives and causes us to do these inexplicable things, like asking forgiveness when we sin and when we offend someone. When relationships are broken, we, we go and we pursue those people on our knees And we say, can you forgive me? I've sinned against you. And own what's wrong in our hearts and not expect them to necessarily own what's wrong in theirs, but to grant forgiveness and grace to it. We're talking about a goodness that your enemies would see and notice. We're talking about a deep goodness that looks out for the others around you all the time, sacrificing your pursuits, considering their needs and even their interests ahead of your own. The Bible uses that language. We're talking about a goodness that endures suffering. If your goodness dissipates with difficulty, it's not really true goodness. Suffering, guys, operates like an x-ray of our character in our lives. And it sees through us. And it exposes what's really going on deep in the depths of our being. When we're dying... When our spouse or partner partner leaves us, when the terrifying diagnosis comes, or when we lose someone we love, when all is stripped away, what remains then? I don't know about you, but I'm actually pretty bearish about being good. On our own, we don't look so good. I think we default to sowing to ourselves. To sowing to me, 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 me. And over the course of our lives, the number of times we do that at others' expense is incredible. So where's our hope? With Jesus, something incredible can begin to happen to sinners like us who are far worse off than we realize. How? By being filled with his life. By being filled with the life of Jesus by his spirit. Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, look at this with me. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Why is Jesus' life such a powerful catalyst for transformation in our lives? It's because he was perfect. It's because he always loved sacrificially. And he always did what is good. And through the gospel, his life takes root in ours. Jesus lived here, let's not forget, on this earth 
in its sorrows and its suffering being fully human, just like we are. Yet he suffered in every way that we do, even more than we do, but was without sin. He sowed to the Spirit his whole life long, not to the flesh. He persisted perfectly in what is good in every area that you and I fail in and crack in under pressure day by day. And after living a perfect life of goodness, Jesus laid down his life, dying in our place. He demonstrated his perfect goodness and love by dying for those that he loved, but who hated him. Sacrificially laying down his life. Listen. The reason the good works of a Christian can emanate, emanate from deep within them is this. It's not our goodness. It's not our goodness that's coming from us. It's the goodness of Jesus that he's birthed inside of us by his Holy Spirit, bringing new life, working its way through us from top to bottom and fusing through our whole lives to emanate out of us his own life so that he lives his life through us. So here's the bottom line. If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this. Hear this. True goodness is impossible without Jesus. True goodness is impossible without Jesus. But with Jesus, but with Jesus, we can begin to sow what is good, to sow to the Spirit. I mean, let's be honest. You know Christians. We're not perfect people. But there ought to be something about a Christian that's different as the life of Christ truly takes root in them and they begin to live out the life of Jesus from within them, from a transformed heart. You know, when Jesus starts to live through someone, you'll notice about it. You'll notice it. It's obvious. Just think about this with me as we conclude. You know, when a, when, a, when a farmer plants his crop and he's out there working the hard soil, it's not a mystery to him along the way whether he'll have a harvest or not. You know why? All he has to do is wander over to the back 40 and wander into the apple orchard and see if there's any fruit growing. Is there any fruit here that indicates that I'm going to harvest something when September comes? Do you want to know what you're sowing to and which harvest you're headed for? Assess your fruit. Are the works of the flesh of self-love growing and increasing in your life? Or are the fruits of the spirit that Paul describes in Galatians 5, 22 to 23? And let these land on you. Think about yourself critically. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, if there's no fruit, maybe it's because the life of Christ isn't at work in you. But if that's you, there's hope. There's good news. 
Because Jesus offers you his life. He's able to take your life, to have it die with him on the cross, and be raised again to new life so that he lives in you. So that he transforms you by his grace, not by your works. So that the person who you are is changed to be like Jesus. That's the hope of the gospel this morning. It's the hope of the gospel. The whole message of Galatians is that this gift is available to us simply by coming to Jesus and throwing our hands up and saying, Lord, I surrender. I'm trying to run things my way. I'm trying to work it out my way. I'm trying to be good my way. I'm falling on my knees. I'm coming to you and asking for you to do something that I can't. I want to trust you. I want to trust you. True goodness is impossible without Jesus, but with him, as we press into a faithful life by the Spirit, as we work, as we labor, our lives will certainly blossom and flourish and grow so that we will reap an abundant harvest. Eternal life with him. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.